Welcome to this podcast by The Rocks Church. We hope you find it challenging and inspiring. For more information, visit therocks.church. All righty. Well, good morning, beautiful people. Good to see you all. Are you traveling well? I hope so. Are you having a good weekend? Loving the school holidays? The cooler weather? <laughs> How many of you love the cold weather? Let me see your hand if you're one of those weird winter people. All right. You know, yeah, I'm holding out for summer still, all right, but enduring. But good to be together again and glad to see you all. And I uh, want to just add my welcome as well. If you are here today for the first time, really delighted to have you here and uh, grateful that you would choose to spend a part of your weekend with us. And we hope that you thoroughly enjoy your time here. And as always, want to say a big warm welcome as well to all the Rocks friends and family joining us from various parts of the city and other parts of the country and even other parts of the world. We're grateful that you're tuning in as well for this fourth installment in our current series called Faithful. We're talking about how to fuel your faith in a world on empty. And we've been exploring what faith is and how to grow yours. And essentially what we're looking at is what we call the five faith catalysts. These are five things that together help us build and forge and fashion strong, resilient, enduring, persevering, active faith. The kind of faith that can withstand all the hardships and the adversities and the difficulties that life inevitably throws at us. Now, we saw a couple of weeks ago that there were only two instances in the Gospels where Jesus was amazed, like astounded. And the first was when he encountered what he called great faith in the centurion who had come to him to ask him to heal his servant. And of course, then again, when he encountered no faith or, or lack of faith, when he was back in his hometown of Nazareth, ministering to family and friends and people who were familiar with him. And there was just something about their familiarity with him that kind of neutralized their receptivity of him. And so the Bible says he could do no miracles. He could do no mighty works there. And Jesus looked at that situation and he said, wow, that's kind of like amazing, right? So only two instances where he was amazed, when he saw great faith and when he saw no faith. And clearly his preference is for the former, right? So he wants us to be the kind of people who have great faith. And by great faith, we just simply mean strong faith, enduring faith, active faith, persevering kind of faith, the faith that will be capable of withstanding whatever it is that life is inevitably going to throw at you. And to that end, we've been exploring these five ingredients, if you like, in the recipe of strong faith, five things that you don't necessarily have to do, but five things that when they come together, they result in this thing we call great faith or strong faith. And we've been exploring what they are. So up until now, we've said, firstly, that uh, number one, the first kind of ingredient in that process is what we have referred to as personal ministry, taking what God has invested in you and investing it in others through service. Um, we've spoken about private discipline, uh, the submission and surrendering of your life to the demands of discipleship and to spiritual disciplines and practices. And, and today we're going to be talking about part three, which is practical teaching. Right, the role that practical teaching plays in the formation of strong, resilient faith. Now, here's a little interesting uh, thought exercise for you to do. Consider this for a moment. If simply believing was enough to make a difference, how different would your life be? Right? If simply believing that stuff was true was enough to make a significant difference, how different would your life be? So take, for example, what we know about the science of nutrition and uh, health and well-being. You know the science. I know the science. We all know the science of the value of daily exercise and the value of eating a nutritious, balanced meal. Well, can you imagine how different your life would be 
If all you had to do was know the science and believe the science in order to enjoy the benefit of the science, how much better off would you feel? How much better off would you look, right? Take the area of your finances, right? We all know the habits and the principles of good personal financial management. We know we should be spending less than we earn. We know we should be saving for the future. We know we should be practicing generosity. We know we should be not accumulating like large amounts of unmanageable debt. Well, can you imagine how different your financial situation would be if all you had to do was know that? If all you had to do was believe in the value of budgeting in order to be significantly better off financially, wouldn't your financial situation be all the more better? Absolutely. Well, what about study? Those of you who are in university or in school, you know, right, the pathway to success and progress in the area of your study is you've got to show up to class, you've got to do your assessments, submit your assignments, sit for your exams, right, do your research. Well, can you imagine how better and easier your study experience would be if all you had to do was believe in the value of the exam or believe in the importance of the assessment in order to succeed, right? You would be a much happier student. But you know and I know life does not work like that, right? It just doesn't. And believe it or not, Jesus knew that, and Jesus taught in such a way that underscored that he knew that, that knowing and believing as important as they are are just simply not in and of themselves enough. If we do not act on what we know to be right and what we know to be true and good, then we will never experience the full benefit and the full potential that is attached to those particular beliefs. Now, of course, that's not to say that believing is not important. Of course it is. Like what you believe is super important, particularly when it comes to the subject of faith. If you are going to be a follower of Jesus and a person of faith, then what you believe is super important. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, says this. He says, and it is impossible to please God without faith. Therefore, anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. In other words, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, all right, if you want to be a person of faith and you want to be a follower of Jesus, that's great, but you're going to have to at least foundationally believe. And you're going to have to believe two important things. Number one, that God's there. And number two, that God is good. Because you're not going to put your trust and confidence in a God that you don't believe exists. And you're certainly not going to put your trust and confidence in a God that you think is there, but don't believe is good. Right, So you at the very foundational level have to believe God is there, and not only is He there, but He's a good God, He's a loving God, He has good intention toward you, He has good plans for your life, God is good by nature. And at the end of the day, of all the things that you believe about life, the single most important belief you hold is the belief you have about God. Because what you believe about God is going to determine how you relate to God, and how you relate to God is going to determine what you receive from God. So to a large extent, your experience of God is to some degree going to be shaped by your expectation of God. So what you believe about Him is going to shape how you relate to Him, and how you relate to Him is going to determine what you receive from Him. So what you believe about God is super important. Now, as important as belief is in the faith equation, it is only the entry point. In a lot of ways, belief is like the shallow end of the faith pool. So having started at the place of belief, God wants us to go on to a place called trust. He wants us to learn to trust Him. And the reason why trust must follow on from belief is because trust is active. Belief, for the most part, 
can be quite passive. So there are all sorts of things that we believe. And there are all sorts of things that you believe to be true. Things that you hold in your heart to be right and true and good. But those beliefs do not necessarily shape how you behave. Right? Like I, I believe that the moon is not made of cheese. And I hope you do too. That doesn't shape how we behave. That doesn't affect how I parent. That doesn't inform how I treat my wife. That doesn't affect how I, how I drive in the traffic. Right? I believe that to be true, but it's a passive belief. And even the beliefs you have about God can be passive beliefs. But trust by its very nature is active. Trust cannot be passive. Trust is always something I am willing to do. Uh, just recently I was reading about a guy that you may or may not have heard about, a, a Frenchman by the name of Charles Blondin. And that wasn't his, his real name. It was his, like his stage or performance name. And Charles Blondin was a, a really famous French tightrope walker who lived in the 1800s. And uh, in the late 1850s, he, he managed to secure permission to run a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And so he would walk from one side to the other, and he would perform all these like tricks and these antics uh, on the way across. So on one particular occasion, he like pushed a wheelbarrow from one side to the other. On another occasion, he carried across like a coal stove. He strapped the coal stove to his, his chest, and he walked across, and then he, he put the stove on the tightrope, and he cooked breakfast on the middle of this tightrope, hanging over Niagara Falls, right? Um, on another occasion, he, uh, he, he covered himself in a sackcloth, and he walked across from one side to the other, essentially blindfolded. Um, he walked backwards on one occasion, and then walked back forwards, right? And so he did all these crazy antics, no safety harness, no security net, like nothing. And of course, people would flock in their thousands to kind of watch Charles do his thing. And Charles would famously stand before the multitudes before he performed these uh, antics, and he would ask them the question. He would say, how many of you believe that I can carry a man across this tightrope to the other side. <laughs> and hands would go up everywhere. People would like enthusiastically shout, yes, we believe, Charles, you can do it, right? And then he would say, all right, who is willing to be that man? <laughs> and nobody ever responded, right? Nobody ever volunteered. And so one day, he managed to convince his assistant, a guy by the name of Harry Colbert, to climb on his back. And he carried Harry from one side to the other, and back again, right? Friends, that is trust. That is trust. It's one thing to say, hey, I believe you can carry me from this side to the other, but trust is letting you do it. And, and so belief may be the start of faith, but trust is the heart of faith. And it's one thing to say, I believe that God is my provider, but it's another thing altogether to trust Him to be your provider. And every time you choose to place God's will over your will, or you choose God's wisdom over your own wisdom, and you choose God's way over your way, you are trusting God. Every time you choose to extend forgiveness, when everything inside of you just wants to exact revenge, you are trusting God. Every time you give generously to meet somebody else's need, even though you know you are up to your eyeballs in your own need, you are trusting God. God. Every time you pray for your enemies, when everything inside of you just wants to punch them in the face, in Jesus' name, <laughs> right? You are trusting God. Every time you choose God's way, God's wisdom, and God's will over your own, you are trusting God. That is the nature of trust. 
And so belief may be the start of faith, but trust is the heart of faith. Uh, listen to what Peter, the disciple and follower of Jesus said. Peter was a close friend of Jesus's and uh, became a very significant leader in the early church. And bear in mind, this is the same Peter that we heard about just several weeks ago when we were exploring our series, Lessons from a Storm. Right? This is the guy who literally climbed out of the boat and walked on the surface of the water in the middle of a storm. And he did that only because Jesus said he could do it. And so Peter had already discovered, like in this really personal and practical way, that what Jesus says can be trusted. What Jesus says is true. If Jesus says I can do it, then I can do it. If Jesus says this is right, then this is right. If Jesus says this is the way, then this is the way. So he had learned that in a really powerful and, and personal way. And so here Peter's writing a letter to a group of Jesus followers who are suffering persecution for their faith in him. So they are being imprisoned, they're being persecuted, they're being beaten, they're being stoned, some of them are being put to death. And so they're at a point where they're questioning, hey, is this worth it? Is this following Jesus thing really worth it? Because this faith thing seems to come with a price attached. And so Peter's writing to encourage them not to give up on their faith. And so in 1 Peter 4 verse 19, he says, so if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God. Now let me just hit pause there and explain that statement because I don't want you to get the impression that God is pleased with your suffering. God is never pleased or delighted when you suffer or when I suffer. Uh, some translations of this verse say, uh, if you are suffering for righteousness sake. In other words, what Peter is saying is if you are suffering for something good, something right, something righteous, if you are standing up for integrity, if you're standing up for righteousness, if you're standing up for truth, and you are suffering as a result, persecution or opposition or hostility, then he says God is pleased, not with your suffering, but with you, pleased with your willingness to suffer. All right, so he says, if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to God who created you, for he will never fail you. You see what Peter's saying here? He's saying, listen, you have to keep doing the right thing, even though you know it's the hard thing. Because when you do the right thing, even though it's the hard thing, it's always the best thing. And notice his emphasis on the active nature of trust. He doesn't say, hey, you just need to keep believing the right things, or you need to keep thinking the right thoughts or feeling the right feelings, as important as all those things are. He says, you need to keep doing the right things. Keep doing what you know to be right. Because trust is expressed in our willingness to do what we know is right and good and necessary, not our willingness just to say what we believe to be right and good and true. So trust by its very nature is active. Um, Paul the Apostle, who was again another follower of Jesus, a significant church leader, and, and the man who authored much of our New Testament said this in 2 Timothy 1, verse 11 and 12. And notice the context in which he is writing from. He says, so God chose me to be a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why I am suffering here in prison. But I'm not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I trust. And I am sure that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until the day of his return. Right, Paul's saying, hey, <laughs> I'm in prison here. This is not a good situation. I'm paying a price for my faith, but I'm willing to pay it because I have learned to trust in the one in whom I believe. And all Paul had to do 
was just say, Caesar is Lord and Jesus is not. And they would have opened the door and they would have let him go. All he had to do was say, I no longer believe in Jesus. And I acknowledge Caesar is Lord. And Paul would have been a free man. But Paul knew in his heart he couldn't do that. He knew that following Jesus comes with a price. He knew that if he was going to be faithful to his Lord Jesus, that there may be some opposition, some persecution, some hardship, some difficulty. And so he says, I have learned not just to believe in Jesus, but to literally trust Jesus with my life. So here's Paul staring down the barrel of not only persecution, but potentially death. And he says, I'm not going to step back. I'm not going to give up my faith. I'm not going to turn my back. I'm not going to walk away. I have learned to trust Jesus with my life. Right? So let's bring this back to the person of Jesus himself and this call or this invitation to follow him. Because that's what this faith life is all about, right? It's about following Jesus. And Jesus is calling each and every one of us into a faith-based relationship with him. He is the object of our faith. And faith by its very nature is trust. It's a relational trust in him. So listen to what John tells us in John chapter 8, verse 30 to 32, and he's recording the words of Jesus. And it says, Then many who heard Jesus say these things believed in him. And Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus is essentially saying to these, these people who have received his teaching, he's saying, hey, it's great that you believe. I'm glad you're a believer. But if you want to be a follower, if you want to truly be my disciple, then you are going to have to go beyond belief and you are going to have to be faithful to my teaching. Which is just another way of saying you are going to have to take what I am telling you as true. And you're going to have to be willing to take what I am teaching you and put it into practice. Take the wisdom of my word and the wealth of my teaching and weave it into the fabric of your everyday living and learn to apply that wisdom and that truth to your life. Follow my instruction. Obey my command. Do what I say. That is essentially what Jesus is saying. Be faithful to my teaching. And in the process of doing that, you discover that the teaching of Jesus is trustworthy and the wisdom of Jesus works. And that is where your faith is strengthened and developed. And nowhere is this idea of the value of application more clearly demonstrated than in Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount. Now, you, of course, have no doubt heard about the Sermon on the Mount. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus or you're kind of new to church life, you've probably heard it mentioned somewhere. Because the Sermon on the Mount is arguably the greatest sermon Jesus ever preached. It contains all like the essence, the heart and soul of his kingdom teaching. And so Jesus teaches us about what it is to have faith in God, what it is to be his follower, how to live a life that honors God, and it's super, super practical. And the interesting thing about the Sermon on the Mount is, well, we call it the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus climbed up to the top of a mountain in order to preach it, right? So Matthew 5, he tells us, Jesus goes up to the top of the mountain and he delivers a sermon to his followers and it's recorded in chapters 5, 6, and 7. The interesting thing is there is another version of the sermon over in Luke chapter 6. And in Luke chapter 6, the sermon is referred to as the sermon on the plain. Because when Jesus preaches it in Luke chapter 6, he's not up on a mountain. He's down on a plain on a flat, level, open field. It's a different time. It's a different place. It's a different audience. Now, when you put those two sermons side by side, they look very, very similar. But there are slight differences 
for the different context. But here's the interesting thing. In both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus concludes both sermons with the same story. So he's essentially preaching the same sermon twice to two different groups, two different locations, two different instances, but he concludes the sermon with the same story. So Jesus gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, and he says, all right, I'm going to land the plane. Let's wrap this up, as I'm going to do in a moment. And uh, so Peter gets onto the keyboards, and John picks up his guitar, and, uh, and they begin to finish up <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, and he says, all right, let me finish up with a story. So bear in mind, he has just delivered like all this profound, life-changing, transformative kingdom truth. And he, and he finishes with this story. He says, there were two builders who set out to build a house. And the one builder kind of dug deep into the ground, went all the way down a bedrock, laid a good foundation, and he built his house on the rock. The other builder just simply built his house on the sand. And inevitably, a storm arose, and the wind and the waves from that storm beat against these two houses. And the house that was built upon the rock stood firm, and the house that was built upon the sand collapsed, and great was the ruin of that house. And then he goes on in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, to explain the parable. And this is what he says. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is like a wise person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in and torrents and floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish like a person who builds a house on the sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Now, whenever I kind of read this passage or parable or share the story or preach on it, you know, I never really ask people, so what do you, what do you think the foundation is in this parable? Like, what, what is the difference between the two? And people say things like, almost instinctively, they say, well, like, the foundation is the Word of God, right? We've got to build our lives on the Word of God. Or some will say, no, the foundation is Jesus. He's the living Word of God, the Son of God. We should build our lives on Him, the Rock of Ages. And as kind of well-intentioned as those answers are, both are wrong because that's not what the point of the parable is. The foundation in this parable is not the Word of God or even the Son of God. The foundation in this parable is obedience to the Word of God. It's the application of the Word of God because notice Jesus says, both men received the Word. Both men heard the Word, but only one put it into practice. And he says, the one who heard it and did it is like the one who built his house on the rock. The one who heard it and didn't do anything with it is like the one who built his house on the sand. In other words, it is application that is the foundation. And here's the whole point, And this is the most important thing you're going to hear all day. So listen closely to this, because this is precisely what Jesus is trying to teach us. He is saying that what will bring strength and resilience and endurance and stability to your faith and my faith is not how much of his teaching we hear or how much of his teaching we know or how much of his teaching we memorize, but how much of his teaching we do, how much of it we put into practice. And the truth of the matter is you can read it, you can recite it, you can quote it, you can pray it, you can prophesy it to yourself in the mirror, you can post it up on your fridge and you can tattoo it onto your forehead and it will mean nothing. <laughs> you will not derive the benefit of that teaching until you put it into practice until you weave it into the fabric of your everyday living. Therein lies the strength. Therein lies the resilience. So how do you build strong faith? 
How do you fashion and forge and form enduring, resilient faith that's capable of weathering the storms of life and the realities and the adversities of life? You do it by taking what Jesus has said and putting it into practice, by following his instruction, by obeying his command. And when you do that, you discover through personal firsthand experience that Jesus' teaching is true and the wisdom of God works. And when you do that, your faith is deepened, your confidence is strengthened, and you're able to trust God more and more. Now, how many of you have, how many of you have one of these lying around the house, in the garage, or in the shed? Let me see your hand if you've got one of these, right? This is clearly a tin of paint. But what's interesting about this tin of paint is that it has been standing in my garage for over two years. And it's full. It's never been opened, right? Waste of time, right? It's completely full. And the reason it's standing in my garage is because two years ago I bought it with all the intention of world, in the world of painting a particular part of the house that needed to be kind of refreshed. But I just never got around to doing it. I've just been kicking the can down the road, literally, right, for the last two years. So here it is, entirely full, completely unopened. And here's the point, friends. It's of no use to me in the tin. An unapplied truth is like unapplied paint, right? If, if, the, if the truth of God is going to color your world and refresh your world and revitalize your world and transform your life, it has to be applied. You have to take it out of the pages and weave it into the story of your life. So where does strong faith come from? Where do you fashion and form the kind of faith that will be resilient and enduring and persevering? Well, among other things, you do it through applying the practical teaching of God's Word to your everyday living. And I want to leave you today as we wrap this up with a question. And uh, this is a question that you can, you can carry into your week, contemplate on it, think about it, meditate on it. You can carry it into the conversation that you have out in the foyer after our time together here. Chat about it with someone over a coffee before you leave. Maybe talk to your wife or your husband or your friend or someone in the car on the drive home or carry it with you in a small group or just into your own personal devotion this week. But the question I want to ask you is this. Is there an area of your life right now, some aspect of your life, where a little application could make a really big difference? Is there an area of your life where you know, if I do the right thing, even though it's the hard thing, it's going to be the best thing because it's going to be me expressing my trust in God. Is there an area or an aspect of your life in which just doing what you know to be the wisdom of God's Word, applying what you know to be the truth of His teaching, will make a significant difference? And if so, this morning I want to pray. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for me. And I want to pray that God would grant us the courage to do what we know to be right, to practice what we know to be true, to apply the wisdom of God's Word to our world. And then watch the transformation and experience the deepening and the strengthening of our faith and the growth of our confidence in God. And so to that end this morning, I want to invite you to stand to your feet if you're able and willing. 
And bow your heads and close your eyes with me. That's up, everyone up on your feet. We'll all stand together. And as we do, I want you just to think of that situation or that circumstance where just a little application could make a really big difference. I want you to open yourself to the Spirit of God, to the voice of God this morning and allow Him just to whisper to your soul. Whisper words of instruction and direction. Allow Him to bring clarity to your life about what it is He requires of you, what it is He wants you to do. And as you do that, we're going to pray that God would grant you the courage to follow through. And Father, we thank you today for the opportunity to be together again in this place. We thank you for the time that we've had together. Thank you for the wonderful sense of your presence in our worship. Thank you that you're near to us and that you are for us. And God, for every one of us standing here, I know that there are areas in our lives in which the application of your truth would make such a profound difference. And for those who are right now experiencing your voice, just whispering gently to their hearts, telling them this is the way, walk in it. This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to say. This is how I want you to respond. Father, for them, I pray courage, courage and strength. Help them, God, to do what they know to be right and true and good. And Father, as they step into that place of trust, I pray that you would show up and, and show yourself strong, that you would do what only you can do in their circumstance and for their lives. I pray that you would be honored and glorified in them and through them. And I pray that through that situation and that circumstance, God, they would come to trust you more deeply and that their confidence in you would be strengthened and that their faith, Lord, will become strong and resilient. And Father, we pray that as we go from this place today into whatever it is that lies ahead of us, you know the end from the beginning. You know what this week holds. I pray, God, that you would grant all of us favor and blessing God, that you would rest your hand upon us and lead us and guide us and protect us and provide for us. And I pray that through all that we are and all that we do, our lives would be a living testimony to your goodness and your grace. And Father, we ask all of these things this morning in the precious, powerful, wonderful name of Jesus and for his glory. And everyone who agreed said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more great resources and to keep yourself up to date, head to our website. Visit therocks.church.com.